All right, brothers and sisters. At this time, I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we are... This, this episode took place on the way up to Jerusalem. Uh, it's probably two, at most three weeks before he dies, okay? Um, so things are fast coming to a head at this point, and we have this remarkable episode here. So Matthew, the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, for how the values and priorities of the kingdom are juxtaposed against those of the world. Grant that we would die to this world and live to your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, today we conclude this section, this little mini section within the book of Matthew that began back in chapter 18, at the beginning of chapter 18, when the disciples come to him and ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And so these 
chapters have been highlighting the nature of the kingdom and, and how it operates on principles that honor certain things, that value and prioritize certain things that are at odds or at contrast with the priorities and values of the world. And how the things we reckon as being of importance and paramount in the world are often the things that are less honored in the kingdom. And so we are to be wise. And we are to think with heavenly thoughts and reckon with heavenly perspective. Perhaps you've noticed there's this thread that's been going through, especially the last few weeks. There's the thread of, of the last being first and the first being last. And it, and it began at the end of chapter 19, and we saw it very clearly last week through that parable of the field laborers. And even here now, in Jesus' reply to the concept of what it means to be a great one in the kingdom at the audacious request of the Zebedee family for James and John, two of the three beloved disciples, to sit at the left and right hand of Jesus in his kingdom. That audacious request is met with whoever would be great must be your servant. So you see that same thing flowing through. But as I was sitting looking at this passage, as I've been reflecting on the last several passages we've looked at, it hasn't escaped my attention that in each case, what we're confronted with are the things that matter most to people, the things that they are pursuing or, or longing for in order to have the good life. You saw it, for instance, in the rich young man. In many ways, he's commendable. He, 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 he has a spiritual hunger, a spiritual appetite. He's, he's pious. He's tried with all of his heart to keep the commandments to the best that he could. He's spiritually sensitive. He understands that despite his best efforts to do the things that he believes God wants him to do, there's still something missing. He has enough spiritual insight to know that it's Jesus, not the Pharisees, he needs to go see to hopefully get an answer to his problem. So a lot to commend him for, right? But at the end of the day, he turns away because what was most important to him? His possessions. Peter, upon hearing Jesus say to the young man, if you sell your stuff and give it away, come after me, you'll have treasure in heaven. As soon as the dude leaves, Peter picks up on that. Hey, well, we left stuff. What do we get? Which, of course, leads Jesus to the parable of the field workers. So we're following you, Jesus. We believe you. But what do I get for it? 
And now, as they are mere foot miles from the gates of Jerusalem itself, and this passage reminds us now that for the third time our Lord has been straightforward. No, no hyperbole, no metaphor, no parable. He's been straightforward. Look, here's what's going to happen. And yet, in that moment, still the audacious request, who or can I sit at your left and your right? What are they wanting? I mean, they understand he's the king in your kingdom. Can I have this? They, they follow him. But yet, what are they wanting? Positions of prominence. So in all these cases, what we've seen is what matters to people. Why am I following Jesus who am I coming, what am I coming to Jesus for? It's, it's the stuff we associate with the good life. Possessions, prominence, prestige. The three big things that, that people want to be happy. The good life. And when we talk about being happy... We oftentimes rightly say that God is far more concerned with our holiness than with our happiness. That's a true-ism, I think. But nonetheless, it should be observed that in our shorter catechism, the very first question asks us, what is our chief end or what is our chief purpose and and according to the Westminster shorter catechism which i believe is a faithful summary of scripture itself what is the chief end of man to glorify god and enjoy him forever now let me break it to you in case you haven't learned this in your own experience you can't have enjoyment of something without being happy <laughs> okay you're, I like, I'm, I'm enjoying this, but I'm, I, I'm angry about it. No. <laughs> to enjoy something is to be happy. So there is a sense in which God is concerned with your happiness because your happiness, your enjoyment of him is part of your chief purpose. But here's the problem. We associate happiness, the good life, along the lines, the metric we use is fundamentally worldly. That is why in these last several episodes, everything the people have come to, prestige, prominence, possessions, it's all stuff that in the world we associate with comfort, ease, security, prosperity, blessedness, happiness, the good life. And worldliness is something that the Bible speaks about and against with frequency, is it not? We oftentimes think of worldliness in, in, in some really sinister way, like, 
Like it's just the foaming at the mouth, God hatred that exists. And some of that's true, but, but there's a more benign appearing way that the Bible speaks of worldliness. And it's just the system that exists that places greater emphasis on the seen, the tangible, the now, the temporal, the fear of man, more so than on the unseen, the eternal, the spiritual. And so once again, we are called by example here to flee from a worldly mindset and adopt a heavenly mindset. Do not be conformed to the world, we're told. And what we see here is that these disciples and would-be disciples who are following him but still operating out of a fundamentally worldly mindset oftentimes mirrors ourselves. We're following Jesus, but our metric is worldly. And so we oftentimes feel blessed when we experience the things that we associate with blessedness. And, and this whole section has been an attempt to invert that. A lot has been written on the subject of happiness. When I was a chaplain in the army, I remember uh, my first, one of my first assignments was to read this this, this study that had been done by, uh, by a major university reported in the New York Times called Happiness 101. And uh, I learned about positive psychology and all, some of you know all that stuff. Uh, but here's an interesting thing that, that proves itself to be true and you see it in the pages of scripture. There's this thing we might call the, the hedonistic or the hedonic treadmill. And what happens is this. You're on this treadmill working, but getting nowhere, right? That's, that's the, kind of the point of a treadmill, to exercise without actually going anywhere. But here's what people have found when we explore happiness. When, when, when you're stuck in this treadmill, what it is is you're your basic mental orientation is that happiness is circumstantial. So, so when you experience good circumstance, it goes up. When you, but then as soon as the newness factor goes away or as soon as the, you're unhappy, it goes down. And so your happiness is, and you're never really permanently anything. You're never making any progress. And in fact, as you experience a major change, your standards change with it. So that way you're not more happy than you were before. By example, I've said this before. My wife and I, when we first started out in 1997, some of you have been married longer and so you made even less. But in 1997, we made a whopping $13,000. We were poor. Our dog kennel was our TV stand. We got a card table to eat on from Walmart. And we make a lot more than $13,000 now. But I will tell you, and I think everyone in here can, can testify, 
I make exponentially more than I did, but I am not exponentially more happy. Okay? So you pursue these things, position, prominence, prestige, possessions, all this stuff, and you're thinking, this will give me the good life. And you find yourself, actually, they've done studies about this, people who've lived for this stuff at the end of their lives, they find that they're not. But you know what they find? People consistently who are the happiest have done with their lives? They live it in pursuit of something bigger than themselves. So in fleeing worldliness and in combating worldliness, what we are being called to do, in part, is to free ourselves, to be free from the worldly ideas of what constitutes the good life. Which is why Jesus here in this passage and what he says and what he does is of significance to us. Okay? So all of that was like this really big introduction. So there you go. Uh, I want you to notice a few things in this passage before I dive into the significance. First, at the very beginning, Jesus once again, straight up, tells his disciples what's about to happen. That's in verses 17 through 19. Okay? He, uh, Jesus, is very explicit in what they're going to do to him. But I want you to see that at the end of it, he says he will rise from the dead. Jesus always, whenever telling the bad news, tells the good news. And I want you to understand that that is how our Lord operates with us. There's bad news, but there's good news. Don't let your hearts be troubled at the bad news simply because you've forgotten the good. Remember the good. And remember that the bad that comes in the meantime is the short-lived part. And the good that comes after is the long-term part. And focus on that. How differently things would have looked for the disciples had they not experienced the time after Jesus' death forgetting that he said he would come back to life. How do you think those three days would have looked? How do you think the, the morning of the first Lord's Day would have looked had they remembered that he said in three days he'll rise again? If they had remembered that, how differently would that have looked? Would, they probably would have been there with a party. But they forgot. Because it's worldly to focus on the negative. You and I are all alike. We focus on the negative. You could live your life and have a day. And you're going to say that you had a bad day because something that lasted five minutes and was negative completely overshadows your mind for the whole day. That's how we are. But that's not how we ought to be. Focus on the good news. So Jesus says once again that he's going to be crucified, he's going to die, but he's going to rise again. And then he responds to the request of James and John and their mother 
by reminding them that whoever would be great, the whoever would be, the would be part, there, right there, is where you have what we would call the ambition. Who is desirous of being great? The one who would be. Now, here's an interesting thing. When you look in your Bible, if you do a word study, there are two words that are used for what we would say ambition. The one that's only used twice, actually, when you look it up, it means aspire. The other one, which strictly means what we would say is ambition and is used multiple times, is always translated not just by itself ambition. If you click on the ambition part, it won't show up. You have to click on the word right in front of it, and it's translated selfish ambition. So right here, whoever would be great, this word means aspire. There is a legitimate desire to be great in the kingdom. But what's the difference between aspire and ambition? What's the difference between an aspiration and ambition? Well, sometimes they're, they're mere synonyms. Okay, I don't want to get too technically. In the English language, sometimes they are functional synonyms. But when they are in contrast... Aspiration and ambition. An ambitious person is someone who wants something so badly they will cutthroat, ruthlessly do whatever, and that is condemned in Scripture as, as selfish. But to aspire, that's where you have a longing for some sort of thing that motivates you to exercise legitimate means and legitimate purposes to acquire it. So it's good to have aspirations. But to be considered an ambitious person reflects your own ruthlessness. And so we are called to have aspirations, but not to be ambitious, because we make use of right means. But then we see here that they're on their way to Jerusalem. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... Luke records it the most starkly. Luke says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Man, isn't that a great image? He set his face. That just conveys steely resolve, doesn't it? It conveys that he, with eyes wide open, knows full well what's going to happen. And he's not running away. He's not dragging his feet. He's not whimpering and crying. He has set his face for Jerusalem. He's 100% focused. And then if you flip over and read what Mark has to say at this precise moment, it's because of his resolve, his steely resolution, his intensity, that it says people are both, the disciples are both amazed and afraid. They're walking up to Jerusalem. Things are getting to a head. We learn from the other gospels, from John, that by this time, the, the holy feast is near. The Pharisees have put out the word that anybody who sides with Jesus is going to be excommunicated. 
It's public knowledge that they're looking to kill Jesus. Things are coming to a head. They're afraid, some of them, that the, the followers, the people who are admirers of Jesus, but yet not really understanding the nature of his messiahship, will use the presence of Jesus to start a civil war. Tensions are high politically, socially. Things are about to reach a breaking point. So there's fear and amazement at the same time. And what is our Lord saying? That the Son of Man came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That purpose of Jesus to give himself as a ransom for many is amazing. Here he is, the creator of the cosmos, the one before whom angels kneel. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at verse 28, for many. The usual word for the word for the English preposition for is, is the Greek word gar, like, like, a, like the gar fish, whatever, the, the fish-like thing. I'm not sure if it's a fish, but they're ugly. Gar, okay, that's the usual word that translates the, into the English preposition for. Here is not that word. Here is the Greek preposition anti. That's not commonly used for the word for. It's, we usually affix it to words like anti-Christ. Anti, it means instead of. So right here, Jesus came to give his life for many. And he uses the word anti. We see the purpose of Jesus here in its full, voluntary, substitutionary glory. He came, pointing to his pre-existence. He was somewhere else. Where that somewhere else was, where was it? The side of the Father. And he came, pre-existently, he came that he might take our place and give himself as a ransom for many. And ransom is a word that many uh, in our day and age struggle with because ransom is something you pay to a kidnapper. So it, it's the payment of something to someone who illegitimately has you. And, and so it's led many uh, in, in, in recent centuries to think that the devil somehow has us and that God has to pay something to the devil to free. Uh, no, <laughs> get, get rid of modern English understanding of the word. The word ransom uh, is just money that's paid for the release of someone with no connotations about a kidnapper or anything like that. No, if, if you, if you uh, were a POW, you had to have a ransom paid to get released. If, if you fell behind on your debts and you got thrown into debtor's prison, a ransom had to be paid. In other words, your debts had to be paid to get released. Okay? So it's just, it's, what it's saying is we have a debt to God caused by the fact that our sins are many and it's created a gulf and it must and that debt must be paid so Jesus came 
because we desperately needed help. The king of glory set aside all his prerogatives to come and serve, to suffer, and to die for people who were hopeless and they were helpless. We needed to be set free as part of that ransom exchange. Because of our alienation from God, Paul tells us that we were enslaved. But in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. We were enslaved, and, and this shows us that God deeply, truly loves us. That the state of affairs that existed, God was not content to let remain, so he sent his son into the world to purchase our pardon, to make full restitution for our sins, our defilement, our uncleanness. And so the Lord Jesus did that voluntarily, willingly. And so, juxtapose Jesus and his priority with that of his disciples. What's funny to me is that the two have the audacity to ask, but then the ten are angry because they wanted to be the ones to ask. They just didn't have the guts to do it. They are stuck on that treadmill. And Jesus here, at the culmination of this section on what it means to be great in the kingdom, he, he shows us his own example. Set aside your personal aspirations. Set aside your personal pursuits of, of prosperity that you understand it and, and value the things that matter to God. Live your life in service to the kingdom. And we will be rewarded. Live your life seeking that which does not perish. Doesn't Jesus tell us that? Don't seek treasure that can mold or rot or be stolen, but rather seek treasure that will never go away. Young man John did not understand this. Young man John is right here asking to be seated at the right hand of God, or at the, at the right hand of Jesus but old man John did get it. Writing several decades later in 1 John 1.16, John, the one who so audaciously asked to sit at our Lord's right hand, he says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love. This world, brothers and sisters, has taught us to be so selfish. We're addicted to everything from pornography to romance novels to social media to video games. And we are so selfish that many have written that we are a generation incapable of love. Oh, we have feelings and affections, but love is fundamentally other-oriented. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so we, emulating our Lord, ought to lay down our lives for the brothers Jesus teaches us how to love, 
how to love him truly and rightly, how to love the, the Lord of all creation truly. And then out of that, how we can love each other properly. Jesus and his kingdom upends everything. And it's revolutionary to the mindset of the world. It's offensive. But this world is passing away. Pursue with steely resolve the things of the kingdom and you will have treasure forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for sending your son to offer himself as a ransom for many. Thank you for laying down your life for us, Jesus, for showing us what love is. Grant that we would, with wholehearted energy, pursue the kingdom. That we would critically evaluate our own hearts and see where we are prioritizing and emphasizing what are functionally, effectively, worldly priorities. And grant that we would perceive and prioritize in light of what your word reveals as being most important. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.